chapter 8. We're going to be looking at uh, the next section. It's always uh, easy, at least at this church, to know what I'm going to be preaching on next because it's just the next thing. So you can look up in your bulletin where it was and I encourage you to read as in the Friday email. We send out the, uh, the text on Friday so that you can be preparing your heart for worship, preparing your heart to hear the word preached. And I encourage you to do that each week. If Christians were known for one thing, in the first three centuries of the church, it was for their fearless faith. Their fearless faith. The accounts of the early Christian martyrs gives us evidence to this. Their name is almost legion. There is one such martyr whose story has been passed down to us for almost 1,800 years, and her name is Perpetua. Maybe some of you have heard of her or heard of that name. Perpetua lived in and around the beginning of the 3rd century in 2002 AD. Emperor Severus made a conversion to Christianity a crime. In 202 AD, he made conversion to Christianity a crime. In the wake of that act, severe persecution broke out in the whole Roman Empire and particularly in northern Africa where Perpetua lived. Perpetua lived in the city of Carthage at that time. She was just 22 when she was arrested and put in jail. She was separated from her then uh, still nursing infant child. All she had to do to be released from prison as so many of her brothers and sisters had this temptation, so many of them resisted it, all she had to do was, was denounce her Christianity. All she had to do. And she would be let out of prison, reunited with her family, with her newborn son. Her father begged her to do this. He would go to her cell and beg her to do this. But she refused time and time again. Within the year, in, in March of 203 AD, she was led into the amphitheater in Carthage. As she entered, it is said that she started singing the Psalms. We just sang a psalm this morning. Perhaps that very psalm was, was on her lips. We don't know. Her and others were stripped naked and placed in nets. And then the wild animals were let loose to play with them until they were dead. Reportedly, her last words were, stand in faith, brothers and sisters. When I read accounts like this, and there are many accounts like this, but when I read accounts like this, it's amazing to me that a person can face fear with that much faith. It's really amazing to me. Imagine 
I was just sitting in my office trying to imagine what it was like sitting in that cell knowing that you were going to be led into the arena. Or imagining what it was like actually being led into the arena in real time, knowing what was going to happen to you. Or imagine being helpless in a net, naked, while animals clawed at you. Yet Perpetua sang and stood firm in her faith. Brothers and sisters, fear, whatever it is, whatever you're fearing, is really a test of faith. Fear tests your faith. Fear strips away all the pretense. Fear shows your faith for what it really is. I mean, that's one of the reasons that the Lord allows storms into your life, isn't it? Allows difficulty into your life. He allows that. He's sovereign. He allows that into your life. To, to begin to expose for your own good the weaknesses of your faith. To expose, if you will, to use a smithy, metaphor to to expose the dross that is that needs to be extracted from your faith. In our text today, what we see is the dross being exposed in the newly minted disciples' lives. Look with me at verse twenty three in chapter eight in God's Word we read And when he, that is Christ, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went, and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Ah, You have little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? Just taking a couple steps back, we have to look at the context in which this narrative is is nestled. We see this in context of Matthew's chapters 5 through 9, which is the great discipleship chapters. He's discipling. In the first three chapters there, 5, 6, and 7, we see that Jesus is teaching about discipleship, what it looks like. And then through the ministry of healing, he's showing them. And he's teaching them along the way. And huge crowds begin to follow him because of his teaching ministry. And Jesus starts doing some field training with all these followers. He starts doing some field training right there on what it is to be a disciple. We saw that last week with these two men approaching him, one a scribe and another an unnamed man. And he explains the cost of discipleship to them in different ways, doesn't he? 
And he's going to continue to do that throughout his ministry. But there, he teaches the scribe about the humility that it takes to be a disciple. Doesn't he? And then to the other man, he talks about the immediacy it takes to follow Christ. Don't wait. There's no phase of your life that you have to wait through. Follow immediately. And after that, we read in verse 23, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Right after he talked to that man. I think Matthew wants us to make a connection there. Right? He just talked to the man about following with immediacy, following now. And he gets into the boat and his disciples follow him. They follow him by faith. They're showing faith by following him immediately into the boat. Not just declaring that you believe in Jesus like the scribe and not following. Not delaying like the man who had to bury his father. But following immediately takes faith. James Boyce writes, nothing can come before a deliberate, active, practical following for one who wants to be a disciple. These men who climbed into the boat with Jesus had left family, friends, homes, occupations to follow Jesus. That's the first lesson that Jesus wants us to learn here is we need to follow faithfully, but follow him. But here we have another lesson. This is, this is the, the next lesson that Jesus is going to teach his disciples and us this morning. It takes faith to be a disciple. Yes, it takes humility. Yes, it takes immediacy. But it also takes faith. And faith's great furnace is fear. That's the furnace through which the dross is, is maybe foreseen by you, fear will expose any dross we may have in our faith. Because fear is pretty powerful. And God uses that. During the years as premier of the Soviet Union during the Cold War, Nikita Khrushchev denounced many of the policies and atrocities of Joseph Stalin. Once when publicly criticizing Stalin, Khrushchev was interrupted by a shout from a heckler in the audience who said, You were one of Stalin's colleagues. Why didn't you stop him? Khrushchev paused and said, Who said that? There was an agonizing silence. Nobody moved a muscle. Then Khrushchev replied, That's why. Fear can make us go almost instantly from boldness to timidity, right? It can make us go from from confidence to cowering, from faith to faithlessness, to forgetfulness. Daniel Doriani in his commentary says, all-consuming fear resists comfort, forgets the power of God, and extinguishes faith. Listen to that. That's what fear can do to us, brothers and sisters. We, we can resist the comfort that God gives us. We can resist that because we're feared. We're fearful. We can forget the power of God 
And it can extinguish our faith. And that's what we see here with the disciples, isn't it? They faithfully get in. They've left everything. They've followed immediately. But their faith just kind of, like, like a, a candle that gets too close to a flame, just melts away. And so Jesus, I think, wants to teach them two lessons in this boat. Two lessons about faith in the face of fear. And the first is, when faced with fear, always remember Jesus' words. Always remember Jesus' words. When you're scared, when you're fearful, when fear comes up, always remember his words. So Jesus is ready to move on from the ministry on the west bank of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. He wants to make his first foray, foray into Gentile territory. So in verse 18, he gives orders to go to the other side, if you look there. Mark recounts for us these exact words in his account. Jesus says, let us go across to the other side. Let us go across to the other side, disciples. So his inner circle climbs into the boat, which archaeologists have have found out that it's roughly about a a 30-foot boat. This is a substantial boat, a 30-foot boat. And Jesus is exhausted from his ministry that we just read about. So he, he goes to the back and, and lays down. Mark tells us he's laying on a cushion. Matthew doesn't tell us that. And a serious squall blows up almost out of nowhere. It took about two hours to get across the sea. So we don't know how long they were out there, but this squall blows up. Very common on the Sea of Galilee even today. It's below sea level and the, the wind comes over the mountains and can just churn up the waves. It was so serious, this storm, that, that this boat was being swamped. I'm sure that the, the disciples were there bailing as fast as they can and, and others were rowing. But they were scared that the boat was going to go down, that people were going to die. And these were fishermen, some of them. So they knew this lake. This isn't like me going out with, with Abe or, or, or Steve or Peter on the, on the boat and, and when they're fishing, I see, you know, four-foot waves and I'm like terrified. And they're just steaming along. This is nothing. It's not like me going out there. These are, these are fishermen. They know this. They thought that they were going to sink. So they go and they wake Jesus up. And they say something that we read and we go, you know what, this sounds a lot like faith. They say right there in verse 25, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. That, on paper, seems like a faith-filled thing to do, doesn't it? They went to the right person. They're in trouble. And they ran to Jesus. Sounds wonderful, Right? But then we remember that saying that is true. There are no atheists in foxholes. Anybody that's in trouble will run to anything that they think will save them. If you've seen Ken Burns' documentary on Vietnam, you remember that, that through that documentary he had letters that, that men in the field wrote home and he would read snippets of them throughout the documentary. In one such letter, a young man writes, honestly, I do not believe in God, 
until the next firefight. We always run to Jesus when we're afraid. But we run to him many times with wrong attitude, wrong motives. Mark, Mark's account fills out what they said to him. You can read about that in Mark 4. He says, they go to him and, they, and they, they woke him up and they said, don't you care if we drowned? Seems pretty accusatory, doesn't it? It's out of selfish, self-preservation, not faith that they went to Jesus. And Jesus reinforces this because he wakes up and right here in Matthew 8, he says, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. He puts his finger on it. They're not coming to him out of faith. They're coming to him out of fear and desperation, self-preservation. And he says, where's your faith? He accuses them of fearing for their lives and not trusting him. But here's precisely when we have to ask the question. How can we ask that question to them? What were they supposed to have faith in? Why weren't, what weren't they trusting in? What weren't they trusting in that Jesus says you should be trusting in this? And the answer is they, they weren't trusting in Jesus' words. They didn't have faith that what Jesus said they were going to do was going to happen, going to the other side. They didn't believe Jesus' words. Harry Ironside, the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago for 20 years in the 20th century, mid-20th century, wrote Jesus telling them that they would pass over to the other side should have been the grounds of their confidence. He did not bid them to enter into the ship to possibly be drowned in the lake, but to go with him to the other side. Had they remembered those words, their faith would not have failed. Had they remembered those words, their faith would never have failed. See, Jesus told them, we're going to the other side. We will go to the other side. And no matter what may come, if Jesus says it, it will come to pass. If Jesus says it, it will come to pass. If God says it, it's true. And so he accuses them of having little faith in what they have, he has just said. They should have believed. They should have trusted. That's what Jesus is saying. And that is the key to having faith when faced with fear. The key is you trust what God says, not the experience you're in. Trust what God says, not the experience you're in. You have faith in God's words, not how you feel at the time. And to do that, you have to know God's word. You have to know the promises that God gives you. A couple of months ago, I got this in the mail. I had no idea what it was. I opened it up and I'm like, well, that's interesting. What is this? Is this one of these trick boxes where you have to move things to get into it? And luckily my wife was there and she kind of smiled and, and laughed a little and she said, oh, honey, that, that's, a, that's a promise box. I said, what's a promise box? She said, it's a box that you, you put God's promises in and, and then you pull them out on a daily basis. 
I said, I've never, I, you know, I grew up a Christian, but I've never seen a promise box. So here's a promise box. Because, brothers and sisters, this is how you live daily by faith in what God says. You know God's promises. And so when you come into a circumstance, when you have a feeling that is taking you off the rails, you go back to what God says, what he promises you, and you remember that. Knowing and remembering God's promises. That's the definition of living by faith. Remembering the word of God, not how you feel. So when you lose your job, you remember Jeremiah 29.11, that God has a plan for you, and he's not going to leave you dangling. He has a plan that is going to prosper you. Maybe not financially, but maybe spiritually. And he's going to give you a future. This is not the end. And that's what you believe. You pull it out of the box and you say, that's what I choose to believe. I'm having faith in this and not my circumstance. Or when you're exhausted of living a different life in the world. Have any of you ever felt like that? My goodness, it's exhausting living as a Christian sometimes. Because I'm constantly doing things that the world is not doing. I'm tired, Lord. Then you pull out Galatians 6, 9. And you read it and it says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. And you say, I choose that over how I feel. Or maybe you doubt your salvation. Have any of you done that? Have any of you had a day or a period in your life where you go, I'm not so sure about this. Francis Schaeffer did for a whole year in the 50s. But he finally remembered what Jesus said. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6 Or when you suddenly lose someone you love and you begin doubting God's goodness. Have any of you ever doubted God's goodness in your life? How can a good God allow this to happen? You have to remember, taste and see that the Lord is what? He's good. That's what God's word says. And that's true. Or when you've committed the same sin for the thousandth time, where do you go? You can go down into the pit and you can wallow there for a long time. Some do for years. Or you can remember that if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive that sin for the thousandth time. Or when you stand against abortion and feel as if the world is against you, how do you get get past that? You remember what Hebrews 13.6 says, the Lord is your helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's where you go. But when you fear that the Lord is not answering your prayers, it feels like you're just talking to the ceiling. Or your prayers are on the floor of heaven. You remember Isaiah 30. 
He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears, he will answer it. That's where you go. And you remember that. Or you fear the destructive nature of the COVID mandates on the church. You fear the destructive nature of these mandates. Where do you go? I go to Matthew sixteen eighteen because I know that nothing will stop God's church. Nothing will stand against his church. Not even the gates of Hades. That, brothers and sisters, is why we're going forward with the internship. That is why we're going to plant or replant a church in COVID. When the pressures of life get so intense, you have to remember what 2 Corinthians 4 says, that yes, sometimes we are pressed on every side, but we're not going to be crushed. Yes, sometimes we are perplexed and confused, but never in despair. Yes, sometimes we are persecuted, and we will be, brothers and sisters, maybe not this generation, but maybe the next. But we will not be abandoned. We might be struck down, but not destroyed. But when life comes crashing down at you and the waves are breaching your boat, you have to remember what it says in Genesis 28:15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And that's precisely what the disciples needed to remember at that moment. And they weren't. And so their faith waned. They need to remember that Jesus had said they were going to make it to the other side. And they had to remember who was in the boat with them. And that's the second lesson that Jesus wants to teach, teach them. Who's in the boat? Remember who's in the boat. Remember who's with you. Look at verses 26 and 27 with me. It says, Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? That is the question that Jesus wanted to ask them. In fact, that's the point of this whole narrative, is that last line. It's the point of this whole narrative, to draw attention to who was actually in the boat with them. Because it's... This is a different kind of miracle than they had seen before. Before they had seen him heal diseases. And they're going to see him cast out demons. And that's a certain level of miracle. But Jesus stands up in the boat and stops a storm. And this wasn't over like a a 45 minute period. This was immediately. It just stops. Mark's account says, he says, peace be still. And immediately, it was still. Nature obeys Jesus. And that's different. It actually causes us, this miracle causes us to ask a different category of questions about Jesus. I mean, the 20th century saw a huge rise in what is called faith healers. 20th century is filled with faith healers, starting back with Amy Semple McPherson in the early part of the 20th century. 
Then Oral Roberts came and so did Catherine Coleman in the mid-20th century. And then towards the end of the century, we had Kenneth Copeland and Pat Robertson and Benny Hinn. And they gained huge followings. If you've ever seen these, these on TV, there's, there's thousands of people at these arenas. They stand amazed. But no one is asking about Benny Hinn the question that the disciples are asking about Jesus. If he even went out into a storm and said, peace be still, and the storm stopped, if Benny Hinn did that, that would beg a different category of questions, wouldn't it? That would be a different category of person. But that's exactly the question that Jesus wants them to ask. This is exactly the question that he wants us to ask today. Toward the end of John's Gospel, we read in, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he gives us the reason he wrote the book, the reason he wrote his Gospel. John writes, Now Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, remember he did seven there, these seven are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. As we learned last week, Son of Man, Son of God, means a divine person. They're divine titles. So the miracles of Jesus prove that he is God. And here, the miraculous storm stops. He has authority over nature. This man has authority over nature. And as we read today in, in Job 38, who has authority over nature? Who has the authority to say, here your waves stop? It's God. Jesus is showing them, I'm God. And I'm in the boat with you. And, and Jesus being God has, has implications in everybody's life. For those of you who are here or are listening on YouTube at home and you've never thought deeply about Jesus being God, I want to take a moment to think deeply with you about what that means, what, what that implies. If that's true, if Jesus did quell the storm, if Jesus is God, I want you and all of us to realize how much God loves us. He loved us so much that he came rushing to our rescue. God loves you so much that he came rushing to your rescue. Brian Chappell writes in one of his books that one of his wife's most powerful images in her life came in childhood when she, Brian Chappell's wife, and a neighbor girl were playing in some woods behind their home. The neighbor girl wandered from the path and stepped on a nest of ground bees, she says. As the bees began to swarm and sting, the girls screamed for help. Suddenly, out of nowhere, she says, like Superman, her dad, this other girl's dad, came rushing through the woods, leaping over fallen logs, breaking through vines and bushes. He swooped up the gr one girl under one arm and the other under the other and sped full speed away from the hive. 
as he ran, the father's grip actually bruised their arms and the branches scratched their thighs and the thorns grabbed at their clothes and skin. The rescue hurt, but it was better than being stung by the bees. Just like that father, God saw you and I that we were in a desperate situation, a rescue type situation. Not from stinging bees, but from the sting of sin. Sin is like a poison to our souls. Sin kills us slowly. Our sin has caused us to be on the road to death and to hell. To forever being cast away from God's presence. And that is described in scripture as a dark place with no light, as a place of pain, as a place of fire, as a place of gnashing of teeth, of weeping. That is the nest you're standing on right now. And like that father, God loves you so much that he came rushing from heaven to earth in Christ Jesus. And he lived a sinless life on your account. He, he wanted and desired to obey God and he did in every way. So that he might be an acceptable sacrifice for God, for you and me. So that he could pay the death penalty that you and I owe God for our sin. And that's what he did on the cross. He endured pain and loneliness on the cross so that you and I don't have to. He took the wrath of God for your sin so that we could be accepted and loved by God. He took the death penalty that sin requires in his own body so that you and I might live forever with God. And through the resurrection three days later, he proved all he said is true. And today, God sees you standing on that deadly beehive of sin and he rushes towards you and he extends his hand to you and says, I'm here to rescue you. Are you humble enough to take his hand? Are you willing to humble yourself and say to Jesus, I need forgiveness. Please, please save me. For many, those words are painful. It means confessing you're a sinner. It means you need to be forgiven. It means putting your faith in someone else and not yourself. And for many people, that is, that's hard. Yes, humility feels like branches scratching and thorns grabbing at your egos. Yes, rescue hurts. But it's better than the bees. Jesus, being God, has implications for believers too. We have to remember what the disciples in the boat forgot. That God is in the boat with us no matter what we face. That's why Jesus asks, why are you so afraid? Oh, you of little faith. They don't remember who's in the boat with them. They don't remember who they just woke up. That's what you and I must do when we are faced with fear. Remember that God is with us. We must remember it is when we are facing our fears that Jesus is with us in the boat. 
A grandfather took his children to the zoo and the grandchildren were fascinated with the animals. And then they got to the, to the, to the ape complex and they went into it and, and there, there were, there were huge plate glass windows separating the, the apes from, from them. And they went up to the window and one of the apes got scared and turned around and started pounding on the window. And one of the grandchildren were terrified and ran to the grandfather. The grandfather tenderly took him and went up to the glass and took the child's hand, put the child's hand on the glass. He said, always remember the glass. Always remember the glass is there. You're safe. Always remember the glass. Brothers and sisters, there will be times in our lives when we are terrified. When life rages around us, it is then that we have to remember who is with us, who is in the boat with us. Perhaps you're sitting here concerned over your health or the health of a loved one. Remember, God is with you. Maybe you're sitting here or at home fearful of the spike in COVID. You're looking at the numbers and you're terrified. That's when we have to remember who's in the boat with you. God is with you. There may be times when it looks as if all is lost. Maybe you're a Christian sitting here or at home and saying this might be the beginning of persecution of the church. And I'm scared. It's at this time we have to pause and we have to remember God is in the boat with us. Why are you afraid? Have faith in the face of fear. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that we have to take our eyes off our situations and more on you. Take moments to remember what you have told us is true in your word and have confidence in your presence with us. What can man do to us? Help us to remember that. In Jesus' name, amen.